Hello, I'm Claire Armistead. Before we hear this week's podcast, we just wanted to point you in the direction of our sponsor, Squarespace. For more information on building beautiful websites, go to squarespace.com. The Guardian. He kept a diary, and that was one of the things that most struck me about the book, is somebody keeping a diary in which they make the same entry every day but seem not to be aware that they're doing that unless it's brought to their attention. And then, because they're not stupid, they can realise for a moment what's happened to them and they obviously that's a, a terrible experience, but then that's forgotten too. Memories are made of this Hello and welcome to the Guardian Books podcast. This week we're exploring how we're made of memory and what it means when the story of our lives slips away. Your lips and mine to sip the wine Memories are made of this The cultural historian Abby Smith-Rumsey looks back into prehistory to chart the tide of data which threatens to engulf our world. The same medium that keeps really important information also is, this, is the platform by which we exchange quite trivial information, the Instagram, Snapchats, and other things that we send. It's as if um, the technology that we used to use for talking to each other remotely, the telephone, every single transmission were, were recorded forever. With his blessings... While the artist Simon Bill introduces us to a character who all too often finds himself searching for the missing pieces. When he wakes up, he does what people often do when they wake up, not knowing what they've done, they ring around saying, was I all right last night? What did I do? Did I say anything? And everyone's sort of, well, you weren't, you know, you weren't great. And it turns out not to have been that bad. Then he says to himself, OK, I'll make myself a cup of tea. He opens the fridge and there's a head in there. Memories are made of this. These days, our collective memory is made from far more than the 150 million items held by the British Library. Our lives are measured out in a blizzard of links and tweets. In her book, When We Are No More, the historian Abby Smith-Rumsey argues that this most 21st century phenomenon is only the latest in a series of episodes where human beings have found themselves swamped by a deluge of data. When she talked to Richard Lee down the line from San Francisco, she began by explaining why information overload can't simply be blamed on information technology. We actually created this technology because we have an insatiable appetite for more information. And we keep inventing new ways of recording information and of analyzing information to give us more information. So I think the, the cause, the root cause, not the proximate cause, but the ultimate cause of the technologies that we are feeling overwhelmed with right now is our native curiosity. And it is just a, a part of uh, human nature that we want more than we can handle, that our eyes are always bigger than our stomach, and that our recording and analyzing technologies always run slightly ahead of our ability to digest all of the information that we create I should say this is not a new phenomenon. This has happened every time there's been a major leap in information and memory technology. But we happen to be living through this one, not through previous ones. And we feel this incredibly sort of sometimes overwhelming digital vertigo. And I think that that's perfectly normal. It's not necessarily going to last forever. 
but I think it is a normal and natural part of uh, growing into a new technology that we've invented. When we're faced with this morass of information, there's also another misconception that we have about it, which is that we're, we're struggling to tell the difference between data and knowledge, between data and memory. Yes, well, I think there's something very deceptive about the fact that um, the the same medium that keeps really important information, you know, scientific information, government records, things like that, also is this is the platform by which we exchange quite trivial information, the Instagram, Snapchats, and other things that we send, which we don't intend to last forever. We intend actually just as a very ephemeral kind of communication. It's as if um, the technology that we used to use for talking to each other remotely, the telephone, every single transmission were, were recorded forever. You know, in the old days, if you wanted to publish a book, or in fact any kind of essayistic literature, you'd need access to machines to type that stuff up, but you'd also have to find a printing house that would be willing to invest money in publishing that material and circulating it. And now, anyone who has a thought they want to share with the world can just open their computer and send it. So this basic filtering mechanism that was imposed on us, that created a relative scarcity of information, that's gone. And now there are no filters, and we're drowning in this new economy of abundance. You draw a, a comparison between the the kind of perpetual distraction of the internet and uh, the mind of uh, Luria's subject, S, who found himself flitting from one experience to the next without being able to connect them into, into meaning. Right. Well, we do know from neuroscience that when we're constantly distracted, then our ability to pay attention to any one thing and process it fully is seriously compromised. We take in a lot of information every day. I mean, if we think we're in an information deluge all the time, the brain of, of the tiniest little creature is in a constant state of trying to figure out what is important and what isn't. So our brains are really hardwired to figure out what we need to pay attention to in the real world in real time and process instantaneously in order to stay alive. And all the other information, which isn't all that important in the near term or even the long term. And the brain does this by memorizing a lot of information. We build this little mental model of the world that we carry around so that in the real world we only pay attention to the things that are new or different than we expect so that we can, you know, we can pay attention to what's going on in the world as we process it. What happens when we get distracted from allowing those memories to process overnight during sleep and over longer periods of time when short-term memories move eventually into long-term memories is that we lose the ability to do what long-term memories are there for, which is in order to make connections, in order to, to allow the brain to see patterns between like things so that we can distinguish, in the case of human beings, really profound meanings and narratives, a sense of cause and effect that gives our lives meaning and some sense of, of trajectory forward. So poor S, a patient of this Soviet-era doctors, he didn't have the art of forgetting, as a doctor said. He paid attention to everything and could remember everything, but couldn't forget anything. And so nothing accumulated meaning over the course of his life. He felt like he was living in a dream or that life had never actually really begun because he couldn't understand what was important in life. And I think, you know, I talk about culture as being a kind of filtering 
of our collective memory that sorts out for us what is important in the long term and what is important in the sh only in the short term. And culture is a kind of filter that captures the long-term memories. But in the course of our own lives, if we're constantly distracted by our phones beeping or someone calling for our attention, then we risk actually the inability in our own lives to understand what's important for us in the long term. Uh, if the brain focuses on new things, on novelty, as you say, because its primary job is to keep us alive in a changing world, you know, you don't want to get surprised by a leopard in the jungle. Uh, and if culture is, in some sense, the primary reason why this, why this weak and hairless ape has taken over the planet, then what about the role of novelty in, in, in culture, in the arts? One of the great mysteries of art is, in fact, that it, it can help us see things as if they were new and uh, deliver information to us in a way that connects with us, even if it's old information, connects with us quite vibrantly as if alive. So the way the imagination works, and art in particular, is to take the experiences that we've had, the world as we know it, and to transpose it into totally new contexts. When we're talking about conjecture and prediction, we're talking about taking experience and projecting it into the possible future as scientists do, or engineers, when they're trying to plan how to build a bridge, for example. They know the laws that have existed in the past. They try to project them into the future about how much weight the bridge is going to hold and how much, how the span should be built. In imaginative worlds, in artistic worlds, we actually take world experiences and put them into alternative realities that have enough of the common experience for us to recognize them as deeply profound and true but clearly are, exist in a realm under themselves, a sort of conjectural world that um, allows us to experience our humanity in a different, and I think many times a deeper and more direct and emotional way. And is this why art needs to strike a balance between breaking new ground and recalling or re-envisaging the discoveries of the past? Yes, I think one of the challenges for artists is this demand that we place on them, certainly since the 20th century, that what they do be brand new, that they have to innovate. I mean, these are like my colleagues in Silicon Valley out here in California. What's valuable is what's new. And in fact, I think that in many cases, the value of the imaginative arts and imagination in general is to take what we already know and not come up with some new discovery, but to take what we know and make it newly valuable to us. And I think what's valuable to us is something which can be placed in the context of meaning. The whole concept of meaning in human lives comes from the ability to connect our past experiences with what's going on in the present so that people can go into life optimistically going forward. One of the reasons that people with depression or, or people with amnesia and certainly people with Alzheimer's, this is well documented, they enter into a kind of a low state, um, a depression of sorts, because without their memories, without understanding where they come from and the meaning of their lives, they're unable to imagine optimistically a future before them. And it's it's been studied that Alzheimer's patients actually, they don't just lose their memories. What they really lose is the ability to use parts of the past in order to imagine a future so that they have this completely sort of eradicated, I mean, spotty memory, and they have, a, they have no ability to imagine a future, and life becomes very bleak for them.
But you draw a number of analogies between individual brains, the plight of the Alzheimer's uh, sufferer, or indeed Luria's uh, patient, or his subject, I should say, S. Um, analogies between these individual brains when they're put, and their individual pathologies, and the body politic, the sort of situation we find ourselves in more widely. How should we be modelling our new systems for dealing with this flood of information on the situations that individuals find themselves in? Well, I, I do think that to an extent that individuals don't quite recognize, and there's no reason for them to, much of what we take for granted about ourselves as individual rests upon the fact that we live in this web of culture in which we make choices about the music that we make and the clothes that we wear and how we distinguish ourselves from each other and whom we choose to love and whom we choose not to love. But those are in some cases choices that are given to us by the existing culture. And we're living now in a time when we feel disoriented by so much that is so new that we think has no precedent in the past. And it's certainly true that much of, we're, of what we're experiencing doesn't have any precedents in the recent past. And I say as someone who grew up as a print native and is now an adopted digital, um, I wouldn't say native, but citizen, that you know, many of the things that I thought would be most valuable and useful for me growing up as a print native are no longer useful. And I have to find new ways of working. I certainly have to reinvent my habits and my ways of thinking about things. But I, I do think that culture allows us to rest um, from time to time, at least with the thought that this has happened before, I do think that one of the dangers of a time of such extraordinary turbulence, this sort of upheaval that we're going through, this very rapid change, is that we will be so focused on what happens next, because as we discussed, we like to focus on what's happening next, that we will lose the ability to remember and certainly to save for future generations the past, which is what's most important. I think, in terms of ultimately finding meaning in our lives. Speaking um, in a cultural context and by analogy, let's say, with um, biology, I talk about how we know that biological species, that the more they live in a monoculture, the less robust they are, the less they're able to adapt to rapid change. You want to carry a lot of genetic um, anomalies or potentialities within a species so that it's readily adaptable. And I think human beings, so profoundly cultural and biologically meant to be cultural, we are at risk, I think, of throwing away many of our past cultural riches because we think that we're moving so rapidly into the future that the past has no meaning for us. But I just know from experience, and I talk about this in the book, that at periods of great change, like the Renaissance and Reformation, sometimes the models from the past became the most important ones. So I think we're really at a risk now, as you would expect a historian to say, but really more personally, a risk that we will discount the past, that we will think only our model, and I say this, you know, the West, specifically Western scientific model, that is now the global model of, of knowledge, that we will think that that's the way forward and we'll risk losing a lot of indigenous cultures which are, which really have a lot to offer us. And I think the, some of the rebellion you see and the, the fundamentalism that we see emerging around the globe is an instinctual human reaction to this sense of threat that the past is not going to be valued in the future. 
Uh, but corporations like Google and Facebook have shown that there's good money to be made out of organising information. Can't we just depend on the market to, to deal with this information? Well, we can certainly depend upon the market to um, capitalize uh, the growth of new technologies, both recording and of analyzing, making use of a lot of the big data. But it is not the job of commercial companies, never has been, it's never been their aspiration, to last forever and sustain cultural assets over time. You know, the, the last information infra, uh, economy that we had had of clearly organically grown division of labor among the publishing houses, among recording studios and movie studios, which created cultural content and disseminated it um, and made money from it and used that money to create more and, of course, to make some people wealthy. But in addition to that, when the cultural assets of movies and books were no longer profitable for these companies to keep up, they they passed very safely into the hands of libraries and archives. And how that happens is a complicated story. It's helped by the copyright deposit system in the UK and the US and other countries and through collectors who are able to collect these materials. But ultimately, they pass into these libraries, archives, and museums for long-term stewardship. And I think what we're, what we're lacking now is, a very, is the safe, secure handoff between the commercially created cultural assets that we enjoy and uh, the safe, secure handoff to libraries and archives. So if we need to maintain cultural diversity for the future development, the future safety, indeed, of our species, and if private companies aren't up to the job for reasons of permanence and so on, then, then what kind of structures do we need to build? Well, we need to reinvent libraries and archives and museums, and I, I mean, I think we're crippled by an idea that um, that these are institutions which are um, buildings and places, when in fact, if we look at what they do, we have to think of them now as existing where the creators and users of the content are. Museums and libraries were invented in large part because people could only have access to information and artifacts um, by going to visit them physically. So we co-located them. We put them all together in a couple of places that were convenient for people. We now have to try to imagine what those institutions, those those stewardship institutions look like in a networked, distributed world. Institutions have a hard time reimagining themselves in a very dispersed environment like this, almost atomized, shall we say. One of the great advantages of the web is that each of us as individuals has the ability to curate at least our own our own small universe of information and we do have the ability to share it amongst each other on the web and on the internet and to upload it to um, institutions like the Internet Archive um, it's actually an institution here in the in San Francisco, which allows people to upload their own digital data but I think over time there will be more such things um, I think individuals and the curation of their own individual sort of ecosystems, information ecosystems, will be very important bricklayers, shall I, shall we say, in the in the new infrastructures being built online. These new sort of virtual brick and mortars buildings. This Guardian podcast is supported by Squarespace. If you want to build a website, you have many options. But if you want to build it beautiful, there's only one. Squarespace gives you the power of world-class design, so you can do more than create a website, you can set yourself apart. See why some of the world's most influential people, 
brands and businesses choose Squarespace. To start your free trial, visit squarespace.com forward slash guardian. If our sense of identity depends on our ability to remember, then what happens when we begin to forget? The artist Simon Bill offers a sly portrait of the contemporary art world in his first novel, Artist in Residence. But when his struggling painter lands a job at an institute of neurological research, it soon becomes clear that we depend on memory not only to tell us who we are, but also what we see. When he came to the studio to talk to Richard Lee, he began by explaining why he decided to lay down his brushes and pick up his pen. There wasn't a moment or a road, road to the Damascus kind of experience. There was uh, a growing interest in neuroscience and I wasn't researching it, I was reading about it in the way any kind of interested layman reads about any difficult subject, sporadically and not very successfully. But so, so why a novel then? Why didn't you um, write some sort of uh, scientific treatise or, you know, uh, layman's guide to? That, I mean, that, that could have been an option. And, and as a novel, it, it is a kind of hybrid of, the, of the, um, the comedy novel and a or comic novel and a popular science book, which is a kind of introductory work to the neurosciences. So I sort of did do that in this book. But the way of getting myself to learn about a subject that interested me was to make myself have to do it. And I had to do it if I was going to write a book about it, because even though there's a great deal more accessible literature, when I first started writing about it, the only thing that was available to the, let's say, the ordinary reader was Oliver Sacks. But there's a great deal more out there now, and, and it's, it's on television. There was the BBC Two series recently with David Eagleman. It's become a bigger subject with a wider interest, and it's become more accessible. Yeah, so this is your kind of New Year's resolution or kind of self-improvement project we've got sitting on the table here. It's exactly like that. I'm a better man for having done it. <laughs> and so where did the voice come from? Where did this guy come from? He's fantastic. Well, uh, thank you very much. Let's talk about what a, an artist in residence is, really. It, it's uh, for anyone who's not interested or hasn't come across the term artist in residence before. It's, um, it's a way that an organisation... An organisation will decide it's a nice idea to have an artist about the place. Like and sort of furniture or, you know... Well, uh, they're, not exact, they're not sure very often what to do with them once they've got them. But um, there's roughly two sorts. There's uh, the kind of organisation which would have an artist around anyway, like galleries and museums. And there's another sort where um, there is, uh, say, uh, large companies sometimes do it, or as in this book a um, hospital and a um, scientific research organisation. There's, there's more point to it because the artist is a fish out of water, which also happens to be a classic kind of setup for drama and comedy. Yeah, he's, a, yeah, and he's a terrific MacGuffin, isn't he? Because he wanders around, chats to all the, all the patients and turns up at a private, one private view after another and, and gets into trouble, winds up taking apart all the model brains and so on. You can sort of follow him around and learn with him, can't you? He's not, a, I've been told many times, and I agree, he's not a lovable guy to begin with. But he's not having a great time, so it's it's partly excusable, and um, because he's in the in the in the institute, he's a fish out of water. But he was a fish out of water anyway, because he was, as an artist, he's a kind of an anachronistic figure. His model for an, how an artist should be is is 1950s figures like Pollock and de Kooning, and it was fine to be a drunken wild man type of a guy. 
in those days and it just is not appropriate anymore so he's 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 marooned in the, the wrong art world even though because these days you have to be much more kind of business savvy to be a professional artist now you better get good at filling in forms because you're going to be doing an awful lot of it and he has no aptitude for um, paperwork or the di digital equivalent of paperwork and he's annoyed that he has to be so he's not been trying very hard and whatever drinking, what the, the the drinking that was um, part of the lifestyle has now become a, a solace for his lack of success as as a as I said, basically a kind of marooned 1950s figure stuck in the, the in the noughties. He also embodies one of the novel's most urgent concerns as he searches through searches through his pockets after another night on the tiles to find out what his body's been up to. Um, it's just an experience that, that occurs so frequently. He's even got a nickname for it. Head in the fridge, yes. It's, um, what happens a lot in the book is, is um, uh, instance in the narrative gives, give rise to um, short... Well, it's a first-person narration, and w when the book is about neuroscience, the, the narrator is just talking to you in normal English about something that also happens to be something in science. And a drunken blackout is... Um, the neurological term for that is transient global, global amnesia which is fairly self-explanatory as a term. You don't know what you've been doing for the last few hours. But, um, but before he's learned that it has this technical name, which he learns, uh, it's one of the th many things he learns as artist-in-residence at the, uh, this institute, he's given it this nickname, which you mentioned, Head in the Fridge. And that's because um, regularly when he wakes up, not knowing what he's done, he has this sort of waking nightmare or fantasy about what, what's happened uh, and that he, he thinks he might during the, the lost hours have killed somebody and that when he wakes up he does what people often do when they wake up not knowing what they've done they ring around and say was I alright last night what did I do did I say anything and everyone sort of well you weren't you know you weren't great but um, nothing you know, out of the ordinary n n nothing, <laughs> nothing criminal let's say so in this um, waking nightmare or fantasy he has about it he's done that he's f rung around all his friends to see what he did and it turns out not to have been that bad then he sa says to himself okay I'll make myself a cup of tea he opens the fridge and there's a head in there there's the head. Oh no! But I mean, whilst you're in this state, you're you're acting. You know, when you when you've when you've uh, lost control, as it were, when you're when you're in that state of uh, inebriation or whatever it is, so it's got you beyond your a kind, kind of, of fugue state. Exactly. That. You're 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 acting on autopilot. You're kind of doing the kind of things you normally do and saying the stuff you normally do. But there's something missing. What what what's the missing element? You're not recording. We don't notice that we're recording all the time, but when you're in a state of transient, transient global amnesia, you're not recording. So it's not. So, you, so you, you needn't be doing anything harmful. And very often, people who've been in these sorts of states, people with um, epilepsy, sometimes have it, and they'll find that they've um, they've realised they've done all the washing up without realising, which can happen to anybody anyway. <laughs> There's, there are some things you do on autopilot anyway. So. So the difference is with those ordinary domestic things is ordinarily when you forget it, it could be recalled. But if you're in, a, in this kind of fugue state, this transient amnesiac state, there's no way of remembering, you remembering it because you haven't recorded it while you've been doing it. But the now, memories just don't exist. And the memories don't exist anywhere. There's no record. So, uh, the, uh, and hence the horror, the, 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 the potential horror of thinking that in that case I could have done anything. And the kind of um, what for the character is the worst part of the book is when he believes he's done something absolutely dreadful. Yeah, I mean, he's not the only one who suffers from memory problems in the novel, is it? I mean, it was, was the character Emily drawn from life? Emily is kind of the... She's a patient at the Institute, and she ha uh, suffers from a kind of um, amnesia, which is not the sort where you forget your past. It's where, where you 
completely lose the ability to lay down new memories. It's called anterograde amnesia. So basically what's happening when, if you have this condition is that you, um, you, you're always living in, a, in approximately a 15-minute window. You're always in the present. A kind of dreadful state if you think about it. You're trapped in the present, but all, all, the strange thing with with uh, patients, there are, it's, it's quite rare because the the damage that would cause it would has to be quite localized. Um, and uh, going back to what you're asking about, based on it's uh, originally it was based on a man called Clive Waring, and there was a documentary that um, actually prompted me to write the book, uh, but only sometimes after time after I'd seen it. A documentary by Jonathan Miller, which is in the 1980s. Uh, um, about this man called Clive Waring, who'd had um, a kind of viral encephalitis that had caused brain damage to the hippocampi, these two little organs in the brain that help you to to form new memories. And he was a musician, and he kept a diary. And that was one of the things that most struck me about the book, about uh, Clive Waring's case, and and how the book begins, is is somebody keeping a diary in which they make the same entry every day and that the hellishness of that, but seem not to be aware uh, that they're doing that unless it's brought to their attention. And then, because they're not stupid, they can realise for a moment what's happened to them, and they obviously that's a, a terrible experience, but then that's forgotten too. I mean, the, the, the point in the book where you describe her distress, the sort of pacing up and down, the, the flapping up her arms and sitting on the end of her bed when she realises that she's written the same entry page after page after page, it's, it's very, very effective. It was, that, was that drawn from Chris Waring? Uh, Clive Waring. Sorry, um, Clive, sorry. He, uh, yes, it was. He, he was, um, well, from what I understand of, of the way it was done, it wasn't with Clive Waring, it wasn't done in quite the same way, but in, in the... Um, book for plot reasons they have to find out if um she knows stuff that they that, that um they think she might know I'll, I'll spoil it if i go <laughs> so <laughs> don't it, give it away so it's a sort of sensitive deprogramming process where that whereby that every now and then they have to to make her aware that she has this condition and the only thing that makes it forgivable is that that even though it is a bit traumatic for her that will be forgotten too and and you know 10 minutes later she'll forget that she just realized that she was trapped in this uh, this state, this and condition. she wanders off down the corridor, happy that she can remember Oblivious, where to go. Yes, yeah. and she doesn't know why she's sniffling, why she's got a red nose, and she thinks she's got a cold. Because um, we will have internal narratives that um, account for things that we can't account for about our own states, and um, they're not always true, but they're plausible. So our sense of self is, is often what seems most plausible to us about us. Yeah, one of the most striking scenes, or one of the most memorable scenes in the novel, you might say, is the, is the visit to the narrator's studio, where he shoves the door open to reveal this, this large light industrial unit half filled with 10 by 12s, about the cubic volume of a single-decker bus, he says. It's a problem with the artist's life that hadn't even occurred to me. What do you do with all the stuff? It's why a lot of artists no longer produce objects, because you, you can end up being um, the foremost collector of your own work. And with a, um, a, a world-class collection of your own work. <laughs> Unparalleled. Yes, yeah. The only one, in fact. Yeah. And, and um, going back to the, the, your first question about why write a... Well, you said why write a novel, but one of the reasons for writing is... Um, and lots of artists are starting to write now, is it takes up no space. <laughs> it's all on somebody else's bookshelves. Yes. <laughs> It doesn't even have to be on a bookshelf. It's just in, you know, it's in cyberspace. Because, I mean, your works, are, they're, they're not quite as big as your narrators, are they? But still, no, there must I, be I, some I am, shed somewhere. With, I am know. also a painter. Well, a lot of them are... Um, uh, st- this is, this is a, a long story I won't go into. But they're stuck in a lock-up in Compton in Los Angeles. 
Why Los Angeles? <laughs> well, I was with a, an art dealer in Los Angeles who um, turned out, to, like a lot of art dealers, turned out to be not quite as trustworthy as <laughs> you thought, or quite not, not quite as good as uh, uh, business as you thought. He owns quite a lot of them, and then, but some he doesn't own. It's, it's very complicated, and there's legal stuff. But basically, they're stuck in the part of LA where the gangs are. And so this bit of your brain, as it were, is locked up in this storage well, unit well, in Los Angeles. Very, very many hours of work are in the dark somewhere. In, but um, as an artist, you get used to uh, improbable things happening. It, it's uh, a good 50% of what happens to an artist is improbable, including most of the conversations you have. And most artists are aware of it, too, when you're at private views. Some people sort of take it all for granted, but quite a lot of artists are, are standing there going, what are we doing? <laughs> <laughs> what's, what's going on here? Yeah, <laughs> there's, I mean, there's a more direct challenge to art from neuroscience than that that, that, is, that comes out of the novel, which is that if the brain needs to recognise things in some sense before we can actually see them, where does that leave the artist's ambition to come up with something that hasn't been seen before? Yes, understood in a certain way, and it is more or less the standard way that visual perception is understood by the brain, understood by neuroscientists, about what happens in the brain when we see things. Before you're conscious of seeing anything, unconsciously or pre-consciously, a process of recognition has to take place and, it, and the, the sensory data you're presented with has to fit some already existing category. You have to have a na some sort of a name for it, identity for anything you encounter, which would mean that on a very basic level, there could ne you could never see anything completely new because it would be invisible. It just wouldn't register as a visual. It wouldn't register, no. So we, we could, be, could be surrounded by, th by things that... Um, are invisible to us because we have no sort of um, factory setting categories into which they would fit. Alien artifacts floating through the room. Yes, yes. that's terrifically exciting. Uh, but I mean, and this, I mean, is the way that scientific images of neurons or galaxies or something we haven't seen before resemble, in some sense, abstract art? Because our um, our visual system, as they as uh, neuroscientists call it, is is attuned to things about the size we are. So that's roughly the size between an ant and a mountain. Those are the extremes, that, that, which, which seems like enough, and it is enough, because that, that, that's, that's, that, well. that, that's the scale in which we move. But most things in the universe are um, way, way smaller or way, way bigger, much, much smaller than ants or much, much bigger than a mountain. And so when we try to see them, when we see a representation of them, the only thing we've got is something drawn from the language of art. Yes, exactly, yes. Which is why uh, uh, an image of, of, a, uh, of a, a planetary nebula or... Uh, a single cell organism look more alike than things of, of sizes between those things. Yeah, so, but, but, I mean, what does that do to us if we're trying to work as an artist in a world where every image ever seen is available at the click of a button? What does that do to the idea of originality? Well, it, it means it's more like most things that, that, any, that we discover. It turns out to be more complicated than we thought it was. <laughs> the idea of originality is very important for contemporary art as it is for science, and that's one of the parallels. But... With art, the importance of originality is to do with the sense of something being original. So the feeling. Yes, yes. So, uh, in fact, if you had a kind of amnesia where you've got things all the time, then every time you saw a pencil, it was as if you'd seen the pencil for the first time. That would be good enough. For science, that wouldn't be good enough because once a pencil's been discovered or once a pencil exists, that's it. You have to discover something else that's different. Uh, but for contemporary art, all you need is some sort of uh, collective amnesia. Oh, gosh, a pencil. Exactly. It's as if, the, and that's sort of a bit, uh, the art world is kind of marking time at the moment because the, 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 the um, importance 
that we used to attach to innovation is still very much there, but all the possible moves that could be made certainly have been. So we have to forget things and then pretend to have dis discovered them again. So that's what the art world is doing at the moment. It's kind, kind of, of slightly artificial construct. It's in a kind of Alzheimer's state. The <laughs> art world has al Alzheimer's. Well, talking of Alzheimer's, I mean, there's, there's just there's a number of other challenges from neuroscience to, to, to art. I mean, like, for example, Monet, who was painting those lilies when he basically couldn't tell the difference between a lily, one of his child. It was all smudges, yes. Yeah, exactly. he, or, or, or de Kooning, who, who was producing de Koonings when he basically didn't know who de Kooning was. Yes, yeah. The thing with de Kooning is... A still fascinates me and no, nobody really understands it. His Alzheimer's or, or Korsakoff's, whichever it was, he, the kind of dementia he had was pretty advanced at a time when he was still producing paintings that are widely felt to be and I, I think are great paintings. And what's happening in those conditions is that your, your brain's basically dying. It's, it's physically, bits of it are just dying. And you'd think, wouldn't you, that when your brain is dying by increments, the first things that would go would be your your highest achievements, your talents, and then names would go afterwards. But it sounds as it turns out, the sort of stuff like names and is what goes first. And and with de Kooning, his um his talent was about the last thing to go, or amongst the last things to go, as as the condition um got worse. But the paintings are in some sense still just as good. They are just as good, yes. Yeah, and they're not either, they're, and they're not completely repetitions of his earlier work. There's, there's a, they're, they're stylistically distinct. There's still a trajectory, even though yes, the, yes. He's the, the kind of landing gear has fallen off. He's still... Exactly, yes. So they are not, he, he's not on autopilot creatively. He's creating still. Which is kind of extraordinary, because you would have thought that that was the higher function, which would be more... Which would be more As I say, you'd think, it, you'd think it would be the first thing to go. So maybe this you? is, yeah. in, in some sense, the creative instinct is more basic to us than names or... Aspects of it, I mean, uh, aspects of it, will, will, well, that's evidence that aspects of it and, and some kinds of creativity, it, it will be, but it depends what kind of creativity. A person with um, advanced dementia is not going to be able to write a novel because it's a different kind of creativity. Yeah, I, mean, I guess, what is this, with this developing knowledge of neuroscience, what has it done to your own work, to your own art? It's done um, actually very little, because it, it's, it's uh, all our brains, we're all kind of highly modular beings, and um, you can choose, choose to or not to have one part of yourself affect another part. And the, um, the part of myself that, that uh, is articulated through doing paintings is entirely different, it seems to me anyway, and it looks uh, from, from the one, one that writes novels. It just, it's just in different boxes. It's in different boxes, yeah. And that's it for this week. Thanks to Simon Bill and to Abby Rumsey-Smith. Artist in Residence is published by Sort of Books and When We Are No More is published in the UK by Bloomsbury Press. Next week, we'll be on the move, exploring danger and desperation on the road to Europe with Wolfgang Bauer and Ali Smith to mark Refugee Week. You can find more literary discussion on the Guardian website, on iTunes, on SoundCloud or via your favourite podcast app. Just search for Guardian Books Podcast. Until then, from me, Claire Armitstead, and our producer, Simon Barnard, see you next week. For more great downloads, go to theguardian.com slash audio.